Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department at Derby. I'm Ian Lyons, one of the consultants. And today's podcast is a bit different from normal. Previously, we've had one of our foundation doctors chat to myself, one of my consultant colleagues, and we're incredibly expert about lots of deeply exciting things. Today, the roles are reversed. So I'm going to chat to Dr. Susan Rutherford. Hello. Hello. Who's one of our FY1 doctors. Mm-hmm. He's going to tell me lots of stuff about something I know nothing about whatsoever. And that's your work with regards to the homeless, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I guess my first question is, how did you get involved? And and when did you get involved in in sort of the work that you've done so far? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... um what I, I do outside of hospitals, I run a homeless shelter um, two nights a week at the weekend. Um, and that's a shelter that provides food, um, a place to sleep and company for the homeless and vulnerably housed. So I started that in my third year of medicine. So I did a four-year course, so it's just before my, my final year. Um, but what led up to that is that I'd been volunteering for a year or so in another local a homeless shelter okay. in, in Leamington Spa and I loved it and I just sort of thought all the guests that came in were great and deserved sort of more than they got in life and um, it was coming up to winter and my friend and I just felt like the two weeks of shelter that they already had just wasn't enough so we decided to add on two more nights to make four which is obviously still not perfect but four is better than two um, we were going to run just for the winter, but then as the um, time went on and it got closer to March when we were going to close, we just realised that we couldn't, there was too much need for it. So we've been going year-round ever since. Okay, and when? how long has that been going for then now? Um, it'll be three years in January. Wow. How on earth do you have the time to study <laughs> medicine and do that then? Yeah, so it, it can be difficult to find the balance uh, sometimes, but uh, I tend to find that when you sort of love something, then it makes it easier to find the time to do it. So other people have things like sports and um, playing instruments and things like that. I mean, I from time to time will go to the gym, but um, it's it's sort of doing this that lights my fire. So um, yeah, that that's what makes it easier to balance. But I've got a good team of volunteers around me. I run it with another guy who... He also works full-time, so between us we can kind of manage things, and um, so I'm not doing it on my own. Okay. Yeah. It's quite a step up from sort of volunteering at somewhere Mm. to saying, I'm now going to expand that service. I can't even think how you'd even go about (laughs) that. How how did you do that then? Uh, So, like I said, it was my friend and I who had a chat about it, and he was interested in in homelessness too, and... um, he's quite a sort of extroverted eccentric type who you know will just go for things um I previously would have been a bit more reserved so he was really the driving force for that and sort of said yeah you know we can do this so we got a group of people who already um worked in the homelessness uh, sector locally as well as sort of local council and local businesses um and asked you know do you think this is feasible do you think we should do it? And they said, yeah, I, you know, I support you doing that. Um, so between us, we just sort of got a few local companies to help us with things like insurance policies and um, setting up the um, community interest company. 
Um, and yeah, between us, we just sort of managed to <laughs> muddle through the paperwork and get it set up. But okay. I think he's he'd done some volunteering before, so had I. So we had a bit of an insight into the kind of people that we would be dealing with and the sort of things that you needed to think about. So that experience definitely helped. Okay. And how have you... Obviously, that's I presume that's based back at home or where you studied. In Leamington, yeah. You're now based in Derby. Mm -hmm. How have you managed to sort of combine becoming a doctor mm. and this project? Has that been yeah, it's hard? Been, it's been tricky. So um, I sort of thought that when I came here, I would back off from the shelter a bit. You know, like I say, I've got people that... Um, helped me out a lot and I've got the guy that I run it with and you know so I trusted that I'd people to leave it with but I just missed it too much so um at the weekends I tend to go down um whenever I have the whole weekend off I'll just go down it's it's not too far but an hour 20 minute drive so um yeah so I've managed to sort of keep doing it and then in the in the background I do a lot of um stuff with social media pages for yeah. the shelter and all the sort of the administrative stuff but again there's a team of people to help with that as well so. okay. and is yeah. it one of several shelters in the area or one of two okay. yeah so we work sort of alongside each other but we're two separate uh, shelters yeah okay and how's it funded who pays for it so most of our funding has come from the local council they have various sort of pots of, of grant money that we've applied for um so that's how we sort of got up and running. And then as time's gone on, we've had um, a lot of really generous donations from individuals. Um, we've had people donating their winter fuel allowance to us and things like that. So people's generosity has been um, amazing and is what sort of carried us through, yeah. Okay. And is are, the, are these sort of shelters something that you, you're aware of sort of elsewhere? So, for example, are there ones in Derby that you're aware of or...? So I believe there are some in Derby and definitely in Nottingham. Um, I've had a bit of a look into them, but not sort of extensively, obviously, because I'm, I'm doing so much work. You've got a job to do as well. And, and a job to do, yeah. Um, but I believe there are some because when we've had uh, patients of no fixed abode, then, you know, I've sort of looked up where the hostels are. So there are some locally, I think, okay. yeah. And what sort of services does the shelter provide then? So we provide a hot meal um, that's it's all quite sort of nutritious. It's from a local butcher. They donate sort of um, made-up casseroles and stews and things. Um, and then they have a place to sleep. So it's pretty basic. It's a big communal room um, where they have roll mats and duvets and things and they sleep around the room. Um, I think company is a big thing that we provide as well. So people who maybe were previously homeless and now live somewhere they still have all their friends either on the streets or in hostels as well so they come together at the shelter to meet up and chat somewhere safe and not on the street um people also enjoy that it's not just the homeless community it's it's everyone integrating together from the community, so professionals, yep. retired people, people who have lived on the streets or do live on the streets. We all come together and chat, and I think that support's important for people. But then being medical myself, then I kind of bring that into the shelter, um, and we take people to um, A&E when they need it. Right. We'll arrange out of ours GP appointments. I've helped people to register with their local GP, 
it's obviously limited because I'm only there at weekends and most things are open in weekdays, but um, we do try and sort of encourage people to take an interest in their health. Because mm, that was going to be the next thing, is sort of how have you combined, or what, what have you been able to bring from your, your current career as a, as a junior doctor into the, to the hostel, into the shelter, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I do try and give them some advice, but we it has to be quite basic. There's not a huge amount I can do. I'm not insured to give mm. much advice at the shelter. Advice will largely end up being going to your GP or we'll go to A&E. But, um, you know, do, we do simple things like kind of minor wound care um, and we'll refer people to other services that can do sort of leg dressings and stuff like that. People will come to me and say, oh, I've got all these symptoms and... I'll sort of say, oh, it could be this, it could be that. And they'll say, you thought you were a doctor, but <laughs> obviously I don't have my venipuncture yes. equipment and a lab and all sorts of things. So we I tend to just chat with them about the importance of ruling out more serious things, going to the GP or, like I say, A&E if it's appropriate. Okay. Mm. And I guess for us as healthcare professionals, you know, what are the sort of very specific health problems that you, you sort of see amongst the homeless that people that attend your shelter? Yeah, so just to sort of preface the health issues, um, for anyone who's not sort of particularly aware, it's really difficult for homeless people to access care. And I think a lot of the time people think, well, it's their own fault, they need to take responsibility for themselves. But these people live extremely chaotic lives. And making appointments isn't always something that's going to be high yeah. on their list of priorities. If you don't have a f- mobile phone, you can't call the GP at 8 a.m. to make a same-day appointment. That's just not going to happen. So that's why you get these frequent attendances at, at A&E, mm. which I know some people find frustrating, but if I was homeless, I'd probably do the same. So some of the things we see often are, I've already mentioned leg ulcers. I think that's the number one. So you get, obviously, there's a higher incidence of intravenous drug use, and um, then there's the leg ulcers lead on from that. So we've had some pretty bad cases with sort of maggots and things like that that we have taken to A&E. Um, we've had DVTs. Um, a more serious one, we had a guy who had a stroke at the shelter. Right. Uh, he was only 40. Um, so he went in, they treated him for two days for an overdose before they scanned his head, um, which is pretty terrible. Uh other things there's a lot of mental health Mm. there's substance abuse um yeah i mean even we have women coming in who've just found out they're pregnant you know there's just a whole array of things that we see and and say i guess one of the main problems is just simply accessing healthcare. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you say you know it's it's hard enough when you've got a phone trying to make an appointment with a gp if you've got no phone yeah even harder and does if they've got no sort of fixed abode, does that impact on people's ability to sort of register with GPs and those sorts of things? So it shouldn't. So the guidelines, um, which you can find on the BMA website, um, state that you don't need to have a fixed address, you don't need to have ID, and you don't need to be able to prove your immigration status in order to register with a GP. So you'll only be registered as a sort of temporary patient, mm. but you will still be able to go and see a GP. But a lot of GP practices, or at least the sort of front of house staff, don't know that. And I've had people being turned away from GPs because they have no ID, and that's not okay, it's not right. Um, and then those sort of difficulties, again, lead to them 
accessing healthcare inappropriately via A and E, things okay. like that. Yeah. And what are the sort of difficulties, say, I guess, attitudinally, have you encountered from healthcare professionals? Or Gosh. Um, okay, this sounds like a long list. <laughs> yeah. I, it it's just never fails to surprise me, the prejudice. And I think, you know, I probably had prejudices before I started all this. And so to me, now that I know the guys and I know their stories, I sort of can't fathom how you can't have compassion for them. But other people, like I say, they see them as people who choose to take drugs, choose to drink, they choose not to look after themselves. But when you uh, explore the reasons for that, I'd say at least 90% of them have experienced some kind of um, childhood trauma um, and you can understand why they, they get into the situations they do and have the vices that they do. Um, but going back to sort of the, the prejudices in healthcare, I mean, like I say, there's the guy who had the stroke the medical team were blindsided by the fact that he was a heroin user with a low GCS. So he was put on an naloxone infusion for two days, like I say, before they did a scam. He's had to have neurosurgery since. Um, I've also taken someone who had a past history of TB, told me he had night sweats and weight loss and a productive cough and they didn't do a chest X-ray. They said he was just a bit dishevelled and they weren't going to do a chest X-ray for um, social sy- symptoms. Okay. Um, and um, then I've had people who, you know, just sort of, they just want to get rid of, of drug mm-hmm. addicts and they say, oh, there's a drug addict around here somewhere or, you know, oh, we'll get rid of him, we'll see him again in a week. And, you know, that's that's not helpful. What we need to do is look at why they keep coming in and how we can prevent that from happening. Okay. And obviously my background is as a paediatrician. Mm-hmm. Do you have homeless young people coming to the shelter at all or do you have children ever brought to the shelter so we have a policy that you have to be over 18 or 18 or above to come into the shelter it's just a a, um, an insurance thing and there are other services locally for young people um, who are homeless I think that the one thing I can sort of relate to a bit is that there are there's a really high percentage of um, homeless guests that we see who've been in the care system and the care I'm not going to lie blame with anyone because I don't know well enough but it just sort of seems like the support's not there to catch them in that really crucial moment from turning 18 to becoming independent when you've never had that direct sort of guidance from parents and things like that and suddenly you're landed with maintaining a tenancy paying bills you know job seekers that kind of thing and you have to do it all on your own and I think that's that's a big problem mm. and are there people that you have to forgive my complete ignorance but are there people that sort of do outreach work into these communities is that other teams or is it GP based how does how does it exist so healthcare wise yes yeah. healthcare wise um not not locally no, I say locally, not local to my shelter yeah. in Leamington, but there are. I mean, so for my elective, um, as a medical student, I was one of those weird people that stayed in the UK, and I went to London and spent six weeks with sort of homeless health teams there, and they have outreach teams and specialist um, homeless GP clinics, which I know there are dotted around the country mm-hmm. as well. I think there's one in Nottingham. Um, so there aren't any for my guests um 
which I think is a shame. There's no walk-in centre in Leamington, which again is a really massive issue because we need that direct access mm. when people decide that they need help. Um, but I think outreach is something that is important because you need to meet these people where they're at at the time, build up trust mm. and a relationship, and then eventually bring them inside to the services that they need. Okay. So if you were to sort of offer a top tip or... A for, for healthcare professionals who are dealing with homeless patients, are there any advice you would give us? So I think just treat them with an open mind. Um, whatever prejudices you have, I think try and put them to one side. Everyone has their own subconscious biases and things like that, but you, you can't treat patients um, by bringing them to your conscious. I think just be aware that these people have complex lives and that they don't they may seem like they make poor decisions and life choices, but it's all caught up in a tangled web of, of trauma and lack of trust in other professionals and things like that. Um, on a very practical note, I think sorting out things like um, methadone scripts when people come in acutely is important. Sometimes that gets left to the end or if it's if it's overnight, you know, there are people you can call to get it sorted, um, even though it may sort of seem a little bit more difficult, which I think is a thing that could be looked into in itself. Um, things like smoking cessation is probably going to be lower down the list for these guys with loads of needs, but even just offering a nicotine patch, um, that kind of thing can, can help with compliance and keeping people in hospital. Um, and then again, detoxing from alcohol. I think we're quite good at that, actually. Okay. But yeah, all those things just help people to engage with their treatment. And are there, for, for us as healthcare professionals, are there any particular resources for helping the homeless people that, that you're aware of, or does that sort of not really exist? Uh, not that I'm overly aware of, to be honest. I mean, I know um, there's a, a group called the Healthy London Partnership, and they've done a lot, um, mainly with GPs, um, to look into sort of what, um, how they can help homeless people with their specific issues um, re with regards to health. And some of that is useful to look at. It gives you an overview. But in terms of secondary care, well, when I was in London, I was working with um, a team called Pathway. So they have, I can't remember how many, but a few teams throughout the country, but they started in London. And their aim was to make sure that people weren't discharged onto the streets and that they had somewhere to go. Um, and what they do is they put people from hospital into hostels and then if they need, say, a bit of district nursing care until their issues are resolved, they'll do that. And they'll still work with the patients and it just gives them a bit more of a connection between primary and secondary care. Um, so I think Pathway have their own resources and they're good people to speak to um, for more information on how to manage inpatients who are homeless. I think all hospitals need a Pathway team, and I don't work for them, I'm not being paid by them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of model, at least, having a, a homeless um, in-reach team in hospitals, I think it could make a huge difference, especially even to preventing re-attendance mm. and 
the cost to the trust as well. Yeah. Okay. So last thing then, what what's next for you? How are you, are you going to con continue your career and combine it with the work that you're, you're doing with the shelter? Yeah, so I'd love to. That's my plan. I think um, the best way that I can sort of serve these people is to go into general practice. Um, and, yeah, I'd like to sort of specialise in homeless and marginalised health care. So um, that sort of includes like, street workers and... Um, like migrants and travellers and things like that as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's going to be difficult to find out where mm. <laughs> where to find that job and is it a case of somewhere new needs to be established or do you go to the big cities sure. where they already are? But then it comes down to sort of funding, which yeah. is an issue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Susan. That's That's been incredibly enlightening for me. I, I say it's something I've... Have I ever thought about it? I'm not sure I have. <laughs> um, but I've, I've learnt lots. And thank you very thank much you. for your time and coming to chat to us today. No, well, thank you for having me on. Thank you.